Welcome to the Media Mix. I'm Claire Atkinson. This episode, we have one of my television heroes, Karen Mandeback. She is one of the biggest independent producers in the world. I've been watching her shows since the 90s. In fact, her shows were one of the reasons that I moved to the U.S., Karen is the owner and CEO of the company that makes Peaky Blinders, a series that's on the BBC. And now I'm watching on Netflix and I'm completely hooked. Um, But Karen, you are known in the US also as somebody who made some of those incredible sitcoms during the 90s, Uh, Third Rock from the Sun, that 70s show, uh, the company that you worked for, Cassie Werner, also made... Uh, Roseanne and The Cosby Show and looked for um, themes for TV shows that nobody else was doing. Nobody was making shows about a black middle-class family back then. Nobody was making shows about a white working-class woman. So tell me, I'm interested, my first question is how you make it as an indie producer in a world where all of the streamers and all of the studios want to own all the rights. Tell me about why that was really important to you from the outset of your career. Well, in the beginning, uh, there was uh, uh, no problem being an independent producer as long as you could afford it, as long as you as long as you had the money. So there was Gary Marshall who did Happy Days and Liver and Shirley. There was Aaron Spelling who did Dynasty. The population of the companies that distributed, there were only three at the time. Uh, laterally, there was uh, uh, Fox Broadcasting, but it was people. Everybody was, a lot of people were indies. A few people were uh, working for the studios, but the, the studios really made a less good product than the indies because the indies were motivated. They they wanted to succeed themselves. And so when they hired all the right people and they hired all the writers and Aaron Spelling, for example, was the first person to hire a female director. Uh, you're, you're looking at some really motivated people who knew who was funny. They knew the writers, they knew what mattered uh, to an audience. And then Marcy came along initially without Tom and hired me because I'd been a producer. And that was this thing. A producer was this thing that was responsible for all of it. And so Marcy saw it because I'd done a lot of pilots for ABC when she was at ABC. And before she quit uh, because of sexism, uh, she was not going to be promoted to be the president, even though she had discovered uh, Robin Williams and Tom Hanks, not to put too fine a point on it, and was responsible for Mork and Mindy and uh, then Tom Hanks's show, Bosom Buddies or whatever it was called. Uh, they wouldn't promote her. So uh, she left. And in order to kind of keep her, you know, close, they gave her a four, uh, take it or leave it, uh, pay or play series deal. So whether she did it or not, they were going to have to pay her as if she did. For, so she needed a producer. And I was a producer because I was, I was born in the era where they had to hire women, but they didn't have any. So Norman Lear originally hired me because I was a woman. And that was it. There was no, there were no other women. So I got to work on one day at a time, which he fired me for, for sexist reasons, honestly. <laughs> and then a, uh, and then a, a career as a producer. What does that mean? I actually had to know how to produce, which was, you know, you could say line producing, but it was, it was more than that. I had to be responsible for it. Mm. So I learned uh, I, on the, you know, bootstraps. Laterally, Marcy hired uh, Tom. 
to be her partner, but I preceded Tom, strangely enough. Tell us about Tom, because Tom owns Liverpool Football Club now, right? Or he yeah, used to. and I recommended that he buy Liverpool, because <laughs> by the time I got over here, I noticed that the people who own Liverpool were, um, uh, these are horrible Texans, and they, they left to go <laughs> back to Texas. And I said, because he'd owned uh, the Red Sox, obviously, so he'd done really well with sports teams. And we, we were friends at that point, long after I'd left the company and gone on to do things without them. Yeah. But as an independent, you learn some really basic things, which is, you know, you're responsible for the money and you're responsible for the vision. And you're going to have to somehow, you're going to have to invest your own money. Mm. Marcy and Tom, well, more Marcy, put her house up, mortgaged her house to do the Cosby show. Wow. Back in that, yeah, back in the, and so I saw that and I knew what it meant to invest your own money. So my money, yeah. my own money started, started this company here in, in obviously and- then Peaky Blinders, but- just back in the day yeah. to invest and to be a female entrepreneur, I don't know that many people have done that since. I mean, it is extremely, I don't know what, you know, why I, I, I just had the self-confidence and I did have the, I had the wherewithal cause I'd gone through some really interesting times with Cosby and Roseanne in particular. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to come back to that. But it it was the heyday of independent production back then because the government uh, rules protected the sector. And then what happened is those rules went away and the studios were able to buy all the companies that produced the shows for the ABCs. Well, no, more importantly, uh, and historically in uh, the 90s, uh, Michael Eisner asked Marcy, who she'd worked for him uh, back in the day. And uh, if she wanted to be uh, in charge of ABC, you know, conceptually, and there, there, there'd be this new thing called ABC Studios. And I would be in charge of ABC Studios. Tom would be business and sports, you know, that kind of thing. And what the guys did. And then I would, I would go to Marcy and I'd say, Marcy, do you want to buy this? And she'd say, yes. <laughs> that, would that was that. So we, we, that was that. So we were going to be the first vertically integrated um uh, entity where the studio was going to sell up to the, the deal didn't end up working out, but that is what I would have been well before Jamie Tarsus or any female head of a studio was conceived. So it was, it was pretty chic. It would have been cool had it it didn't happen. (laughs) So now you are in the UK, you moved there in 2005 and you came up with, uh, the money to get behind Peaky Blinders. Um, and, and now we are 2023 and you're seeing something similar happening in the UK production sector, that the ability to keep control of your own rights, to have that longevity, it's something that the writers, uh, in Hollywood right now are fighting for the ability to get residual shows. And we'll come back to that, but tell me about where you see the UK production scene, uh, at right now, you went there because you felt like uh, the U.S. was a place where you just couldn't operate. Well, I couldn't because of the FinCEN ruling. So we knew early within the Clinton administration in 1998 that they were going to, uh, you know, get rid of the FinCEN rules. For those of you kids who don't know what that is, it was um, financial interest and syndication rules, where at at the beginning the networks could only own 40 percent of the product by law. So uh, when I still have a T-shirt that says I survived 14 time slot moves, third rock from the sun, which meant that their nascent efforts at NBC, they tried 14 times to do their shows and have my show be the lead in to their show. And they succeeded with um, 
out of 14 years, I had Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But in, it, it, it just was a bad time. And the loser in this case was the audience. So there were no, because they would go, my show, your show, my show, your show. Well, your show's better than my show, but it is my show. Yeah. So they, they, Money they kind of use, they, well, my show, meaning I need to build a business here on the back of the hit. So there's nothing more important to say other than it is a hit driven business. There's nobody going to argue that. Yeah. And so with regard to the writer's strike and all independents everywhere are all people who know that the only money is in a hit. There is no money. If there is no hit, you have to have a hit. So how do you, you know, otherwise you make money. Yeah. The problem is defining a hit, right? How, how do you define a hit? Well, then, then it was just advertising and, you know, they paid more money for your show and you knew you had a hit. So in the early two thousands, uh, there was this concept called basic cable and you knew that you were going to make less money on basic cable, but you could own the rights. You could still operate outside of the network's um, orbit. And so I developed an island rights to Nurse Jackie. It was 100% my show. And that was showtime. Nurse Jackie was show. Yeah. And so you made less money, but you could keep rights. So then you could even see that going away because then showtime owned by giant corporation, et cetera. So I moved to the UK where I'd gone to university and where I, I had like a personal relationship with um, a lot of playwrights because I was a theater geek and all that. But uh, you're, you end up here having the rights. You can own your own show. So it became less and less. In fact, now I don't even think anybody really, unless they're really well-funded, owns the rights to their own product, unless they're really well-funded. And even they take money from other you know, bigger corps. So I never took any money. I invested. I hired a bunch of incredible, talented people. And own the rights to PE Blinders. Yeah. And so when you went to the BBC, did you say, uh, this is my show and I'm going to keep the rights? And yeah. they were okay with that. And then same. Well, they had to be. The, 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 oh, there were tons of independents here. There still are. There still is a thriving independent community here and even in Europe. It just isn't so much in the U.S., so in answer to the question, you, you, uh, you have to borrow money from uh, a distributor or somebody has to borrow money to float you throughout the whole thing. Then you, um, uh, you do the show, try to do it for the budget, get the money back. And then what also disappeared was the hit metric. So, um, the, and also the, uh, the motivation for them to market you. So when I started, BBC gave me 70, bless them, gave me 75% of the spend and at the end, it was 19%. Not their fault. I blame nobody. Love the BBC. Still think it's the greatest institution ever. But two things happened. Brexit, and they ran out of money uh, just generally. So the production sector here is squeezed. They just don't have enough money. And also the streaming, they started their own wonderful iPlayer service. But as soon as they started it, they came crashing up against really bigger behemoths who um, made it harder for them to distinguish themselves and I just think it's a very, very, very tough environment wherever you are. It's tough in America because you can't be an independent. It's tough here because you are an independent. Yeah. And so what are your thoughts on the writer's strike and the uh, the AMTPT? No, the AM. Very good. A- did I get it right? It's AMPTP. You did. Almost. Um, they, they put out some details, I think, last night about what they, the minimum guarantees, a minimum uh, amount of uh time that writers can be on a project so that they uh, have a couple of weeks of development time. Um, Why do you think the writer's strike got started? And what what do you think resolves it, Karen? It's a great question. I, I, uh, you know, historically, uh, this was not never a problem I had. 
So I really, I, I never experienced it. It depended on the head writer. If the head writer wanted to have two buddies in the room, the head writer would have two buddies in the room. If the head writer didn't want anybody, then the head writer didn't have anybody. And not to put too fine a point on it, but Steve Knight wrote all 36 episodes of Peaky Blinders by himself. So how many people did he in the room? Nobody. How many people did, were there in the Roseanne writing room? 22. So, and mostly because she just wanted her friends to be in the And we couldn't, you know, I, I didn't even know what it was going on. It was so hard to explain. But I guess what I would say is whatever it takes to make a hit. Because I think for me, the hardest bit is to, is to make a hit, to know your audience and to feel what is going to distinguish itself. That's, that's why you make the big bucks is, is that, you know, what makes a hit is, is a very non, uh, logical, non algorithmically oriented. Uh, so however many people it takes, whatever it takes, if it's Mike White writing all of it, that and directing all of it or Taylor Sheridan, that's one way. It could be 25 people in the room and Roseanne's a hit. So I don't, I don't know about mandates. I can't personally figure it out, but I do think that the head writer, they used to call them head writers, not showrunners, you know, back in the day. So I think the head writer has to make that choice, not be told what to do. But on the other hand, an industry has to thrive. The writers have to figure out a way to regenerate themselves. Otherwise there won't be any hits. So I think it's just very, very difficult to mandate, but I do think the head writer, whatever, whoever, because the group didn't sell it, whoever sold it has to have a lot of input on how many people and when they come in and how long they stay and all that and who they are. Yeah. One of the key issues is kind of defining the hit. Is it something that brings in lots of viewers? Is it something that sells a lot of uh, kitchen roll for Amazon or iPhones for Apple? Um, Tell me when you look at um, data back from your partners, are you seeing what are you seeing that the writers in the U.S. are not seeing over in the U.K.? Well, I, I am a big, I'm an investor, actually, and a believer in Parrot Analytics. I, I invested in them early, just personally, because no one was giving me any feedback. ABC couldn't, because they only have the U.K., and we, were, we knew we were popular outside of the U.K., but we're like the number one show in Brazil or in Turkey, or you know what I mean? If, without... Uh, parrot analytics. I wouldn't have known that to be honest. So I invested in analytics and then because they're about social media impressions, I was also getting a, um, not just, we like the show or we've seen the show. We love the show. So what that make, in other words, a hit is something where I love it. And so it's, it's a wide, a lot of people like it and they really love it. So a hit is something that is widely appreciated and deeply appreciated. And good news, Parrot Analytics, at least in my little tiny case, uh, really answered what I felt was true because I started seeing the social media impressions, which were crazy. And I started seeing the Netflix analysis. If you like this, then you like that, uh, which is important to Netflix. And a view is not two minutes. A view is I love that episode because, and in the social media impressions, we, we felt that they, we just felt there's no way to know. But you you feel it, and there's nothing you can say other than they used to call it water cooler TV. They couldn't prove a lot of people were talking around the watercolor about that episode of Seinfeld, but they were, and you 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 felt it, and you you knew it. We we knew Cosby was a hit. We knew Roseanne was a hit. Cosby was the first one to say Roseanne's a hit, and she toppled him historically. So so a, uh, a kind of you know it's a hit if you have a T-shirt that says I survived 14 times that moves or 
you know it's a hit with that 70s show because there's not one parent in the whole world that has and the world that hasn't said to me damn my kids watching that 70s show so and i watched it too so you just you you have to say you don't really need too much information it'd be nice if they shared i i, I had a, a, at mipcom with julia alexander you know from parrot and 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 puck and it's sort of the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning that the, the numbers can't come up with it but they can confirm certain aspects of what you've done are sort of hit friendly <laughs> so should the streamers be sharing more do you think they will to resolve the i do i do think they will and i think they should if only to create a, a, a toastier environment for the next hit. Because I, I, there's nobody in the world who will not say it's a business of hits. Because if you, if you, you know, if you were smart, you'd be able to do hits at one after another, you know, what's your problem? So the problem is, is that you have to be rewarded for that hit. Because otherwise, what's your motivation? You know, it's Steve Knight is so amazing because his motivation was I really want to put Birmingham on the map. I mean, in addition to I, I want to be like the best writer in the whole world and, you know, win a couple of Academy Awards. Uh, it, it was he really, really loved the people of Birmingham. He loved the the, the culture and he still does. He, he just wants to put Birmingham. That's his motivation. I'm a working class girl. No, you know, nothing more to say. I told you my dad was a gangster and a, and a um you know, uh, a working class girl has a lot to say about about working class families, especially among gamblers or people who um, the famous the famous line, Tommy Shelby, you know, I'm just the best example of what a working class man can hope to achieve. After Snoop Dogg hears that line, we get a call from Snoop Dogg saying, yeah, that applies to me and Jay-Z too. So, so they're fans of Peaky Blinders, right? They saw it. Oh, everyone's got, a fan. Got in touch with you. They were early. Yeah. So, so, and then all the musicians in the world start hustling us because they know it's a feely thing. You can't, you can't logic it out. You can't add a rhythmic. So if you understand how the working class works and you read books, like I'm reading a Dennis Lehane book, if you, if you read, if you read about what working class lives are like and historically have been like, well, how many more people are there that are working class other than aspirational middle class? I'm sorry. A whole lot. Yeah. you just, you got to honor that and you got to make sure that everyone's experience, especially on earth, nobody's got any money. They're never going to get rich. They have to deal with their families. <laughs> you know, there are certain things and women have a certain role and you know, that's, that's hit stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so tell me how your personal background, you're from Chicago. Uh, you mentioned, uh, mobsters. I got to dive in there and, and ask you a little bit more about that. Um, you made a gamble. You made a gamble yeah. on Peaky Blinders, right? And you said, this is a show sure I did. believe in. I'm going to put all my bets and my money on this show. And it paid out. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, uh, it wasn't like I was betting on a horse. You know, I was betting on myself because I felt that I had the skill set, and especially among the people I hired and especially entrusting uh, with, you know, Steve Knight. I thought it was a safe bet. I didn't think it was anything. I only understand a few things. I can't do a lot. I'm very, I love these producers who can, are so rangy. They can, David Heyman, he can do this. He can do that. He can do this. He can do, you know, what a brilliant guy or Blumhouse, Jason Blum, I totally admire. I love those people. They're just astonishing. But the thing about us is that we create our own IP for the most part, or very selectively work with people who've created their own IP. We don't usually do someone else's stuff. So it's a, it's a personal thing. And it, because I'm from a working class family, 
I resonated with Steve's script right away. I knew just, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And so does everybody. So did, you know, it's not, it's not that far from everyone else's experience. You think it seems weird, but it's so not. Every, everybody who's a working class person, which is almost everybody, sorry, uh, gets what we're up to. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Roseanne came back to ABC and it was a huge hit unexpectedly. And I think Roseanne Mm -hmm. talked about Trump and it found a huge audience before she, you know, made the unfortunate comments, um, Mm -hmm. the racist comments. Um, Mm. the, the, so tell me about what's missing today on TV. When you look around, clearly that tapped into an audience, um, when, when you mm. come back to the States or you're in the, the UK, what's not being represented? Well, everyone, everyone loves the bear for a reason. Same, you know, same thing. It's just, there's nothing that different. It's income inequality. It's, you're never going to get it from point A to point B. It's, uh, how do you become the best person you could be at the very beginning of, of Peaky Blinders? Harry, the barman says, yeah, that's Tommy. He's a, he was such a happy kid. You know, he, he was the happiest kid. And then the war, now he's dead inside. Cue the blonde. So, you know, so there, it, it's not easy to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to have a hit. I'm saying it's easy to understand. A hit is easy to understand why you're feeling what you're feeling. Usually it has a family element. Yeah, yeah. Or, or relatable office, like the office, which is a hit, you know, a really relatable how you feel when you're in an office. Everyone gets it. That's how I feel when I'm in an office, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's very relatable. Just giant relatability factor. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's go back to talking about being a woman in the business. When you look around now and you see lots of women creators and diversity in the business. Oh, so heaven. What do you think? Heaven. Heaven. I just think heaven. All I can do is go, thank you for God's sake. Because when I started, they, they just didn't have them. <laughs> Honestly, God, it was awful. When I was working for Norman Lear, noted, you know, wonderful man, not so much a feminist, let's just say. So, so they just didn't, they didn't know, you know, to be nice about it. They just didn't know any better, you know, yeah. they, they literally didn't understand. Are you seeing more? Marcy? Yeah, Marcy. Understood. Yeah. One of the first. Yeah, she hired me. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. She obviously saw talent even at the uh, beginning of your career. But when you, Maybe, yeah, to uh, any female producers that you look at now and think, wow, that's great. Oh my that's God. Great. Tell all me. of them. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a giant fan of all the women in the industry here. I think they're all great. This is, there are only like five of them, but they're all great. It's so, you know, so refreshing. You go to meetings. I had a meeting today, five women, no men at all. And it was great fun. And nobody thought anything of it. And one was a genius director. I'm like happy as I can be. So that is the joy of being, and also just there aren't enough entrepreneurs because there aren't, because entrepreneurs themselves are an endangered species. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing? Because you just don't have that money anymore. Yeah. On the money topic, are you seeing any um, private equity money trying to buy individual production companies now? Um, Yeah, there's a bit of a trend. There's a bit of a trend uh, for private equity coming in to try to buy, you know, companies like mine or whatever. There's, there's a a bit of a trend over here because People they know the, the passion that you put into yeah. it and, and you need the money. So the passion is real. It's not corporatized. It's not a bunch of people in the committee and stuff. It's, you know, cause we are only as good as our weakest buyer. If our buyers aren't strong and if our buyers aren't somebody that we just adore and it's really hard, we, we love, um, I cannot tell you how much, you know, we love a buyer. 
that we, who loves us back. Yeah. That's, it's a partnership. And I really just, I just want to encourage the buying community to get the best and the brightest out there. So we speak the same language. They, they need to speak our language and we need to speak their language because otherwise they give you notes and the writer goes, huh? Or goes, screw you. Or, you know, but if the buyer, if, if I would take a note from a FedEx man, I don't care where the note comes from. And all good writers would agree. Everybody or anybody who works with writers all day, you want, you want to, you want to be the best partner you can be. You want to listen really hard. So we are hopeful that our buyers are stronger. That's, that's what we, we always inside our business. We always say, dude, is that a good buyer? Who's that buyer? Is she smart? You know, you know, yeah. What what advice would you give to people who are starting out and who maybe don't have money, who maybe are working class and saying, I could be a writer or I could be a producer or I want to be in the TV production business? How do you go about funding your first show? Uh, well, you have to have money or backer to fund the show. But to be a writer or a director and all that business here in the UK, there's some terrific uh, training schemes. Um, I personally started the Minority Writers training program at the Writers Guild of America a long time ago in the 80s because Cosby said to me, we need some black writers around here. And I said, yeah, except there are, there are none. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, they just, they don't exist. And he said, well, that's your problem, isn't it? And I was like, uh-huh. So I called the guild and I said, can I just please start this program? We'll fund it. So we started the Writers Guild. And I'm sure a lot of writers today went through the Writers Guild of America training program. So I would I would say uh, it is the responsibility of the guild to do to do more training. I think it's more responsibility. I think I'm going to uh, one day have like an institute where I'm, I have like kind of like Sundance, you know, where where you have people having uh, a tutor to teach. You can't teach what to say, but you can teach the basics of how to write. You can't teach what to say ever. That's good luck with that. But because um, writing is is your own personal experience, but. Yeah, I think you can train writers uh, and then fund writers. And then uh, the gal who, who runs my development, she does the Brit list. Alexandra Arlando is, is, who works for me, does the Brit list on her own. And tell, tell us, for people who don't know what the Brit list is. It's the 100 best unproduced scripts. Got it. So she sees them all. Yeah. And she works for me, head of development. So she knows everybody. So that's a... It's a big advantage for me. So I've, uh, in my way, I'm funding it and I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one taking advantage of, of her knowledge, but I certainly can. So more individuals have to give back whatever they know. Funnily enough, they don't tutor much here because in generally, you know, Steve Knight never really managed a room. He wrote, and a lot of them just write themselves. Jack Thorne writes himself, you know, so they, they don't have a history of that. In the U.S., it's a little bit more, there's a room and David Milch teaches this one and uh, David Chase teaches that one. There still are writers that don't teach anyone in America. They just go their own way. But it's very difficult to break in, but you better be, you know, you better be lucky and not expect to get money right away. (laughs) Yes. Good, good advice. So what are you working on next, Karen? Tell us uh, some of the projects. That well, we have a giant, hopper. we have a, I never talk about development. A, it's bad luck and B, someone will steal it. So I'm not going to talk, but I do have um, an international slate. So I don't just work in the UK. So we, we've got big time development in Spain and in France and in Germany and a bit in Italy. So we're, uh, we speak all the languages because just so happens the company is uh, trilingual and there's no um 
you know, there's no disadvantage in working in Europe. It's, it's, you know, if you want to go an hour away from LA, you're in Reno. If I want to go an hour away, I'm in Paris, you know what I mean? So might as well. <laughs> do, do you miss living in the States at all? Anything about uh, your past life in Los Angeles? No, to be honest. I, I, I miss the sun and the sea. I, I miss my son who lives there, um, but not really. Um, I, I, I grew it or I never was of it. I'm not sure why we were, we were not a fit, me in LA. I still love going back there. What's, what's wrong about LA? It's LA. You know, you yeah. go, I stay near the beach and then I run on the beach and then I eat fabulous food and my friends are still there. So I got no beef, but in terms of working, no. You like the British TV culture? Not necessarily British, but European. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, I live in Europe. I mean, despite Brexit, um, and I, I guess um, it, because I'm in my little world over here, uh, minus the corporatization, I just live in a bubble that may never be able to be replicated. I'm just very, 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 very lucky. Excellent. That's probably a great note to end on, Karen. Thank you. Thank very you much. so much for joining the Media Mix. It was so um, wonderful to chat with you today. Uh, and you. Many thanks, Claire. Cheers. Thanks so much. That's it for the Media Mix. Stay in the mix. Subscribe to this podcast and the newsletter, The Media Mix. Reach out on social or over email at themediamixus at gmail.com. And let us know your thoughts on the podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, to rate and review us. Thanks as ever to Jamie Maglietta, who is the exec producer, Ray Hernandez and all at Situation Room Studios, who are our production partners. Thanks for listening. <music>